Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm really looking forward to talking with my guest today. Joining me again for a second time on Accelerate is Deb Calvert. Deb Calvert is president of People First Productivity Solutions and author of a great book called Discover Questions, actually a series of books, Discover Questions. Deb, welcome to Accelerate, or welcome back to Accelerate. Andy, thank you so much. I am always delighted to be here. I, I love what you're doing for the world of selling, and Accelerate is my number one go-to podcast. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And you, I didn't even pay you to say that. That's great. <laughs> Unbidden. Thank you. So, you know, you were here, gosh, near the beginning when, when we first uh, first rolled out. So many people that didn't hear that first conversation may just take a second and introduce yourself again. Sure. Uh, so I work in selling as a field coach and field researcher with buyers and sellers. Been doing this for a lot of years. My book, Discover Questions, Get You Connected, is is based on buyer research. And it's earned me the, the title, The Queen of Questions, because it's all about what are the the kinds of questions that really help you to be purposeful and effective when working with your buyers. The queen of questions. All right. Gosh, I'm writing that down because I like this idea of titles. Uh, I got a crown a few weeks ago, so it's on my mind. <laughs> well, no, I think it's it's for, for people listening, actually. It's, it's, yeah, we've had episodes on the show about personal branding and, yeah, having that image in mind, I think, is, is actually really important. I mean, you you are the queen of questions. So I, yeah, I spoke to Eric Lurs, who's the you know the Bruce Lee of sales, uh, or Bruce Lee of prospecting. But you know, it's a, it's it's an imagery. Uh, Wendy Weiss, who's you know the queen of cold calling, and I think those are good images for people to have of themselves. Well, I kind of like it. I you know I, being royal at this point in my career uh, feels kind of good. <laughs> we all need that boost sometimes. <laughs> it's okay. I think it's I think it's great to put that stake in the ground. So. Uh, you know, one of things we're going to talk about today is this topic of value in sales. And it's actually a topic I've had a number of conversations with people about. It's one of my favorite topics. I've written about it extensively. But I think it's it's also sort of in danger of becoming a little bit of a cliche as you know, it gets overused or misused. So, I mean, let's start at the beginning. Where What is value in sales? I mean, to you, what is value in sales? 
Well, that is always subject to the interpretation of the person receiving the value. So what is it that, that matters most to you? What is it that's going to help you or serve you in some way? That's value. And then on top of that, I think there are levels of value. So there's the, the value in the product that's inherent to the product. Then there's the added value, which is what companies have spent decades building and branding themselves around. What do they do on top of the product to give you a little something extra? And I think that's the one that's gotten really skewed and, and misunderstood because now if you ask a salesperson, what is added value? You're going to hear everything from, oh, it, it's a discounted price. It's tickets to the ball game. It's the extra add-ons that we'll throw in there for free because you're such a valued customer. It has all these different interpretations. But I think in the here and now, what matters most is a value that we don't talk nearly enough about, and that is created value. In the moment, highly personalized, out of thin air, almost like magic, what is so relevant, timely, and personal to the individual buyer that the salesperson is able to give them person to person that's created value. And that's a, a sort of a heady concept to, to wrap your mind around. Well, but I think it's really for, if you're in sales, that's, to me, that's really all you can concern yourself with because you have no control over any of the other value. So you don't have any control over what the product does and the features and the ultimate value it provides to the customer that invests in it. The only value you can really control is, is this concept you're bringing up is the value you create through the sales process as part of this customer buying experience. And the most success, successful salespeople do it. And they might not call it creating value, but they do it almost instinctively. And it's what differentiates them from the rest of the pack. Well, and that's right. So we get right to the heart of it. You know, in sales today, for everybody listening, you, you are the difference. First and foremost, the first line of differentiation is you, the sales rep. And because in crowded marketplaces where there's lots of competitors, customers have a hard time really distinguishing between products. And I may not have a hard time, but I mean, the products themselves aren't, aren't highly differentiated. So, so what are the bases that the customer uses to make a decision? And one of the criteria is, gosh, what's this, what's this interaction I'm having with this person? What's this experience I'm having in this experience, in this process of evaluating and making a decision about this product? It's true. And it's not just the way it was even five or 10 years ago, but buyers, because they're doing all that research on the front end and then contacting or accepting a meeting with the salesperson, they have already commoditized the product and, and to some extent your company and brand. In their mind, it is coming down to the things we don't want to talk about, like, like price. So we've got to shift the conversation. We have to give them more to respond and react to. And all we've got is ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and it boils down. I like to boil it down to to time, right? As as the customer invests some of their time in you, what are you giving them a value in return? And yes. if as a sales rep, you always have that sort of fundamental bargain in mind, then this concept, as you talk about, of creating value, really starts coming to the fore because it's it's you're mindful of it every time you consume any amount of their time. You have to say there has to be something I'm giving them in return for what they're giving me. And it's not unfair, right? Sometimes salespeople bristle a little bit at what you're describing, but it's not unfair. As consumers, we do exactly the same thing ourselves. We, we choose to spend time with a salesperson or not based on how much value we believe they're going to bring to that conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, we've, <laughs> we've all done it. I mean, I mean, let's say take an example: shopping for cars is, is a perfect example. Is is yeah, I went on with my daughter last year. She was looking for a car. She knew pretty much what she wanted. She wanted a Volkswagen and Jetta, and so we, you know, go to multiple dealers. And you know, the first two dealers just really couldn't be bothered with us. Mm. And so you make a choice. Well, gosh, yeah, this one's more convenient to my home, but we're just not going back there because you know they didn't have time for us. We don't have time for them. Yeah, and. It's a conscious thought process to a certain extent, but whatever was happening subconsciously that caused you to come to that conclusion, that was the missed opportunity. That's where value wasn't created for you. So give us some examples of what creating value is. What is the value that's created? Well, I'll give you a couple of um, bits of research as well as some examples. So here's a quote I love. It comes from a guy named Michael Dart. He's an economist, and he was quoted in the Wall Street Journal. And he gives us two choices. So he kind of draws the, the line in the sand. He says, if you want to succeed in selling, you can keep doing what you're doing, which is try to get there faster, more often, ahead of your equally compelling competitors, right? That's the, the fact that we've all been commoditized. Mm-hmm. Or, he says, the only other choice you have is that you create such an awesome connecting experience that buyers will go out of their way to come to you. So... Part one, what is creating value? That there's a connecting experience, something human to human that causes a person to like you, believe in you, see you as credible and useful to them. Uh, so there's just the, the most common sense thing. There's a connection. That's value. And that's differentiating from all these other salespeople out there who sort of dehumanize because we're letting buyers dehumanize, making it a transaction. And then we respond with this sort of dehumanized, well, let me just get my my qualifying questions in there as quickly as I can. Well, And we take ourselves away from human to human. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, all right, lots of things to unpack there. The human yes. to human is, right, I think is in danger of, of being lost or devalued and you know, use value in a different term. Because certainly, I think one of the impacts of the influx of a lot of the sales technologies we're having into the space, which are can be extremely useful tools, but they're also seemingly misused in the sense that you know, if you're if you're thinking your entire goal in life is to make a lot of contacts, you know, as a sales development rep or business development rep, then the impact on buyers' the experience is, is pretty dispiriting. Because uh, yeah, you, you go and you download a white paper, and then suddenly you're inundated with with emails that purport to be personalized, but really aren't. And it's the same sort of bland messaging. And and there is no as as the quote you had is from Dart is there is no awesome connecting experience. Right, and we look for it, and we miss it when it's not there. We may not articulate it. But you bet, when you experience it, probably as you did with that third or fourth car dealership you walked into, when you experience it, you actually have a different feeling. And we, we call it retail therapy, right? There's science to that. It's actually euphoria that's being triggered in your brain. And it bonds people and it causes you to have a perception of value in that moment. Well, I think that that, that is interesting because it in multiple levels, but it really appeals or applies, excuse me, to... The fact that people fundamentally are making emotional decisions when they buy something. I mean, the, the expression is, you know, people make emotional decisions for logical reasons. Yes. And so we lead with the emotional side of our decision making and we backfill with the rationalizations about why that made sense to do it. 
Exactly, because with your example, which was was so astute, you made an illogical decision to choose a car dealership further away, except that you rationalized it based on the emotion and the feeling and the connection that you had with the one that you ultimately chose. Yeah, and people do that all the time. Yes, I mean, so your buyers, if you're in a business-to-business sales environment, your buyers, you want to think, oh, yeah, they're smart people, maybe, you know come from a great financial background, the buyer, the per your primary contacts are great technical and they're going to make a logical, rational decision. And they don't. Or at least it's not driven by that. I mean, I remember harking back to experience my own past where selling a, uh, proposing to a very large telecommunications company to do a custom product development for them. And we were a startup at the time. And the CEO of my company, the founder, he just, he said, there's no, there's no way this company is going to buy this custom-developed product from us because they have a room full of engineers. <laughs> They've got more engineers. Uh, they had hundreds of engineers, and we were a company of like 70 employees at that time. He said, there's just no way. Logically, they're going to make that decision to buy this from us. But it wasn't about that. It was about trust. It was about the fact that they thought we could deliver it, that their internal people couldn't. And so the emotions really ruled the day. Exactly. And trust is the key word there. Our emotions, our human-to-human connection, it builds the trust that makes us okay with, with being vulnerable to enter into this new something with, with the salesperson that we're going to now um, engage with. Yeah. And I, I like this, this concept of creating value. I like, I mean, I, I sort of split it into two areas. Interesting to get your thought on this because I think value in, in the buying experience or in the sales experience comes from sort of two categories. One is there's tangible value you can create for somebody through the sales process. I mean, you could help them, give the information they need to be able to help them make a decision more quickly, a good enough decision more quickly. That certainly has economic value to them. And then there's the useful value, but just the things, the information, the questions, the insights, everything you provide that that help them make that decision. And if you keep that context in mind that there's two types of value you can provide, it gives you a lot of options to make that connection. It does. And that second type, you know, what, what all this research is telling us is that that second type is becoming increasingly important. Th- there's another component to, to both of these. Um, let's see how it fits in with the tangible and, and the useful value as you're describing it. A, a book called The Future of Competition goes into great depth, but the ultimate conclusion out of it is that what you need to do to appeal to buyers today is to allow them to be participants in the process of creating what they want. And if I unbundle that, right, there's uh, that they participate. That means we don't land and whammy them with some insights that we developed all by ourselves, but they are participating. And what they're participating is creating. So now there's a collaboration, buyer and seller. There's a a process. Again, it's not just that we did it in the background. Mm -hmm. And it's what they want. So it's customized, or or at least it has some... uh, component of it that they've been able to tailor, which is why on the retail side, Build-A-Bear and Sephora and Home Depot and all these these retailers that have had extreme growth, they have had that growth largely by giving people an opportunity to participate in creating what they want. Oh, yeah. And Home Home Depot, one of the greatest taglines of all time. You can do it and we can help. Exactly. I loved it. Gosh, (laughs) nothing better than that. I've never seen a better better tagline than that. Okay, great. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. We're going to keep on talking about value and connecting with buyers with my guest, Deb Calvert. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly 1,000 companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. 
Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Welcome back to Accelerate with my guest, Deb Calvert. Now, you just recently wrote about 10 essentials for connecting with buyers, and I thought there's some really good stuff in there. And maybe we don't have time to go through all 10, but let's let's start talking about um, about some of those. Uh, one is that you said you know certain things that reps should know the answer to at all times. And I, I love that type of, of, of construction. So one is, what's the buyer's top priority within their buying role? Right. And, you know, this becomes more important now because there are 5.4 decision makers involved in a B2B sale. So it, it, our work has gotten bigger. We can't know for each and every one of those the one, you know, the dozen things that are important to them. So we better cut to the chase. What matters most to you? And if there are five people with five different roles, maybe there are four or five different elements there. So we've got to get to it quickly and hopefully find some unity between or some overlap between those things that our 5.4 decision makers are looking for. The <laughs> 5.4. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know. So, I mean, I'm laughing at it for two reasons. One, the point four I love. Um, but the, the, I want to be that point four person. The, <laughs> the other thing though is, is really, it's, that's no different. I mean, you've been selling enterprise solutions and selling to the enterprise for a long time. Certainly I have been, yeah, I, I'm always sort of amused when we think that somehow this is revealed wisdom that there are 5.4 decision makers because gosh, in my experience, there's always been at least that many and, and all the, the enterprise selling that I've done. I, yes, I think the larger the organization, the more complex the sell, certainly the more decision makers there have always been. But I believe what this new research was was trying to call attention to is that even in SMB, even in smaller organizations, there are more influencers and more people involved at a greater depth in the decision making. Because in business today, everything is done by committee. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I, that. I still don't think it's really that different. I, I think, you know, this is a whole separate conversation we have about sales. Is that we go through the cycles where we come up with old things that we think are new again, and uh, it's part of our process. I think of sort of, I don't know, carrying on oral traditions that we have to rename things. But anyway, separate, separate conversation. So you're the queen of questions. So what what are questions you ask to help sort of surface the buyer's top priority? You know, within their buying role, because they have this, they have an objective. I think they actually think they have two objectives actually when they're buying. Is one is what I call their their business objective, which is you know what is the value they want to extract and gain from their investment. But the other is their their buying objective is they don't want to take forever. <laughs> they want to be able to do do this buying process with sort of the least investment of time and people and energy possible. I agree. And, and we owe it to ourselves, too, to be protective of our time. We don't want to spend hours and hours on some sort of fishing expedition masked as a, as a needs assessment, which is why I believe that, that needs assessment needs to change from diagnostic to dialogic. And that sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like a dialogue would take longer than a simple, straightforward diagnosis. But that's not true. What we need to do is we need to be really purposeful in questions and to get to, to what you just asked me, 
how do I find out a, a buyer's primary need? I ask. I have to be efficient and effective with my questions. So I ask what I call a, a V, value question. That's part of the DISCOVER acronym. And I simply say, at this point in time, what matters most to you and why? Or something else that will force the buyer or group of buyers to think and make a declaration and give me something, the one thing that I can respond to. Because unfortunately, Andy, you know, what happens more often than, than not is without a question like this to, to put it on the table, when we're selling, we hear a hint of a need and we pounce on that hint of a need, oftentimes leaving a bigger or more urgent need on the table for somebody else to swoop in and, and steal the business from us by, by responding to. Yeah. Well, I think the one thing that buyers or sellers, excuse me, are are really unconscious of most times, and it's to this exact point, is is there's usually just one thing that's really driving the decision. I mean, you could I give examples of this. I've you know dealt with big RFPs in the past where we might have a compliance matrix that we have to fill out that may be 17 pages long with hundreds of items that we're complying with. But they're really at the customer's mind. There's if we could do this one thing really well, that's really what's going to justify the whole investment. And so it's finding out that top priority becomes so key. And I think that, you know, I would put out there that it's not just the question that is as important as the question is really an area where I think sales reps really fall down is they don't listen to the answer. Agreed. And I advise people to not respond to an RFP without knowing this first. And it's a fair question, usually in the process of an RFP where they give you a chance to ask questions, that's the right place to ask it. And this also surfaces value. The question, though, is what are your decision criteria? And please put them in rank order for me. Yeah, well, and, and that's right. And that helps. But sometimes it's actually getting to the, of all the 5.4 people that, that are supposedly the decision makers, what I found is that even in those instances, there's usually one who's a little more in charge than the others. And that person has this one idea in mind. And you need to use the questions you talk about, your dialogic questions as opposed to a diagnostic, to surface what that need is. What's the thing that's really going to tip the balance in your favor if you can do a really good job on it? Yes, that's a great question. And, and these are make-you-think questions. If they haven't already worked this out, surprisingly, many times buyers haven't. They've, they've got the idea in their head, but they need to uh, think it through and articulate it and marry themselves to it by saying it out loud. So there's real value that you're creating for the buyer by asking those kinds of questions that, that help them sort it out. And then your job as a sales rep, when you ask that question, let's say you ask the question, you know, at this point, what is what matters at this point in time, what matters most to you, is then you have to listen without judgment. Yeah, yes. Somebody gave me this phrase uh, a while ago, and I've, yeah, I've been using other words. This one, I think, is, is really succinct. You have to listen without judgment. You have to get rid of the filters, get rid of the biases, stop thinking about what you're going to reply Stop thinking about the next question. Listen to what they're saying. Yes. So I, I bought a car four years ago, five years ago, and there was so much judgment. I went to one after another Infinity dealer, and I wanted a blue car. And at that time, as you know, cars were silver, black, and white because of, of what was going on in the economy. And you'd be amazed at how many people scoffed or were very dismissive because I was putting front and center the color of car that I wanted. And they tried so hard to talk me out of that since they didn't have those on the lot. Okay. I must, I must have missed something in the economy. So why was everything silver, white, and black? 
Well, maybe it was here in California only. I don't know. But, but uh, because they didn't want to have inventory and a variety of colors because cars simply weren't selling at the rate that they had been in prior years and, and are now beginning to pick up and sell again. So you just really hmm. couldn't buy a lot of off-the-lot uh, variety of colors. Interesting. Okay. All right. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fun facts we know until now. So, um, but yeah, you have to dismiss filters. Yes. And yeah, I've told the story. My wife teaches medical school, and you know, there's one course they teach aspiring doctors about how they interact with the patients, this human to human connection that you talk about. And that, you know, the doctors on average have like more than 20 sort of built in biases they have to filter through to really listen to the answer and make a great diagnosis for the patient. I think that's fantastic to hear that somebody's actually looking at that and teaching that because I, I beat up on doctors a little bit. When I talk about a diagnostic needs assessment and what we need to move away from doing, my extended analogy is don't do what your doctor does. <laughs> <laughs> well, some do a great job, but but yes. the thing is that they, they're, just, they're humans like all of us. And the, for me, the key takeaway was that you know, we all have these filters. And so, you know, we're doing the same thing that a doctor's trying to do in, in 10 minutes when they talk to you. They're asking you a number of questions. They're trying to get the answers. They have to dismiss those filters as much as they possibly can to really make sure they're listening to the answer and put the answer in the right context. We have that same imperative as, as sales professionals. When we talk to a buyer, when we ask a question, we have to pay attention to the answer and not put it in a niche, not put it in a box, not... Not uh, judge what it is, but just listen to it first. I, I think you're absolutely right. And when I do coaching around listening skills, the piece of advice that I give people is listen for what's different. You're hinting at that. Our brains are wired because we think faster than people speak. We're wired to listen for what we hope to hear or what's familiar to us. And that's why we miss the subtle and, and those clues that we need to pursue around what is unexpected or what is different from what I already know so we can tune in and enrich the conversation and make sure we get everything out there to, to talk about. Love it. Love it. That's a great way to put it. Listen for what's different. I like that a lot. So we're sort of wrapping up a little bit with talking about customer experience. You know, this is, this is one of the key differentiators you have is what's the customer's experience going through this buying process with you. And it's so funny. We're seeing... You know, much I am at least reading a lot more these days about the importance of customer-centric selling, but that's really not again something that's not new. Yeah, you know, this is you know Michael Bosworth had his book published back in two thousand three. Customer-centric selling. You know what did it not take? Is that why we're seeing more of it now, or is it just we need to keep reminding ourselves that it's important? I, I think what, if anything, has changed. It's just that buyers are more empowered than they've ever been before. And sellers have scrambled to figure out what do they need to do. So this reminder or this tweak in terms of how we put the customer at the center, that feels different. Whether it's actually different or not, I think could depend on what you sell and how you sell. For me, it's nothing different. I, this has just always been the way I've, I've more naturally sold. And I was a big believer in Bosworth from, from day one. So... Uh, for others, though, the ones who perhaps didn't have an opportunity to come at sales this way, they, they came in 
to sales at a, t a place in time where maybe uh, the product sold itself. Now things are feeling different because buyers have so many more choices than before. Yeah, and I think the thing that's really right, and for for sales reps, they just have to always keep in mind more than I think almost anything that they they are trying to keep in mind is that this whole idea about the customer experience and the buying experience is that it can be the difference between winning and losing. You know how you sell more so even than what you sell can oftentimes be the difference. Can be the difference maker between you and the next person and the next vendor. Agreed. And in the B2C world, so many businesses have put a lot of money into customer experience, hiring the, the customer experience officer and, and putting across the entire retail organization, for example, emphasis on the customer experience. Because just like you said, it is what makes people want to come back and want to spread positive word of mouth about a place they've done business. But since we're all in B2C, we're all consumers, that's how our buyers are conditioned now when they, they work with us in B2B. They have this heightened expectation, and it's all about experience. Right. And there's been work done by people like Daniel Kahneman and others about how people make decisions based on the experiences they go through that uh, are very telling. You know, So really important to focus on every time you have that chance to have an interaction with a prospect. Getting back to the beginning of our conversation, what's the value that you're creating for them? And what's their experience in working with you and going through this process. Absolutely. And and you do. Every time you hear somebody say something like, hmm, that's a good question, or I hadn't thought about it that way, right? those are the tells when you will know you've created value that was unique and of real importance to that individual. So it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be costly or time-consuming. But that's what you're aiming for is that make-you-think moment. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, Deb... We're going to wrap up this part of the show, move to the last segment of the show where I've got some questions to ask all my guests. Now, you've been on the show before, so I had to come up with a new set of questions for you. I figured you would. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is like you know, the opening of a new chapter. So, here's a hypothetical scenario for you. So, you're, you're a sales leader in a company. You're selling B2B product to enterprise, and your conversion rate, your win rate, your conversion rate of qualified opportunities to orders is, is just too low. So, in your experience... What are the likely causes and what would you do to fix it? Well, if I am coming out of a place where I had a higher win rate and things were going well before now, I'm going to first look at, if you were someone I was coaching or if you were coaching me, I would advise first looking at, did I get complacent? Did I start to ride the gravy train and forget to keep my funnel filled and to keep working at the top end of the funnel? Because those behaviors, getting back up there to the top and continuing to prospect, we, in sales, we never, ever should discontinue or, or become complacent to the place where we might lose out long term. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you fix it? You go back to the basics. What was working before? Probably you were spending more time, focus, energy, and attention on prospecting and on creating value and on, on being front and center with your key prospects, being strategic and deliberate. I I would almost guarantee that if I looked at your your week to week, what you did then versus what you do now is you're spending less time there. So how do you fix it? Is you go back to the basics and you get back to the top of the funnel, more time and attention. Okay, all right. So now some more rapid fire questions for you. Is it easier to teach a technical non salesperson to sell or to teach a salesperson how to really understand how a product and service works? 
It does depend on the individual to some extent, but by and large, for something highly technical, I believe it's easier to teach an open-minded person how to sell. Okay. If you could change one thing about your business self, what would it be? Hmm. Uh, It would be to delegate more work more often and to trust people who are a lot smarter than me about specialty areas. Okay. So one non-sales book every salesperson should read. Decisive by Chip Heath and I forgot his brother's name, the Heath brothers. Yes. So I always want to say Chip and Dale and do that, but I know it's not Chip and Dale. So, um, Dan, Chip and Dan. Chip, Chip and Dan, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, just read, I just reread uh, Made to Stick a couple weeks ago, so I should have known that. Um, so what do you do for fun? I read. And actually, I'm going to revise my answer. You didn't ask for two, but the brand new book that I just okay. read is, is Grit by Angela Duckworth, and it's every bit as good, Okay, S- especially for, for salespeople. All right. That's Grit by Angela Duckworth. I read, and I hike, and I travel. Travel. So where's the most fun place you've traveled? Ooh, I just got back from Paris a few days ago, so you're catching me uh, at a nice. moment of weakness. Uh, because every place you look in Paris, you, you, you can't isolate a single cross street without there being some depth of history, some beautiful architecture, and, and some story behind every single place. And food. Oh, that too. <laughs> yeah, food, right. For some of us, food. All right, good. So uh, thank you for joining me again. This was great. My guest today, Deb Calvert. So Deb, tell people how they can find out more about you. Uh, well, come on over to the website, which is People First PS, the company name People First Productivity Solutions. Solutions gets easy edited. for you to say. Blah blah blah. <laughs> people first productivity solutions. People first spelled out. P.S. And at the website, be sure and look at the stop selling and start leading pages. That's where a lot of new research is emerging, and where there's a lot of information about the all new needs assessment, diagnostic versus dialogic. On Amazon, discover questions get you connected. On social media, People First PS is the handle. So connect with us. We're doing a lot of research. We'd love to hear from your listeners, Andy. Okay, great. Well, that's a great idea. People should get involved. Make sure you go to peoplefirstps.com and uh, participate in the research. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And an easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen on your commute, in the gym, or part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Deb Calvert, who shared her expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.